Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As longtime listeners of our program know, each and every week, a guest and I unpack the Torah portion, the weekly reading from the five books of Moses that is offered in synagogues um, each and every Shabbat. This Shabbat is a special Shabbat. It is the first day of the holiday of Passover. And so the weekly reading is interrupted, and we have a reading uh, reflecting some of the story of Passover as noted in the Torah. However, many of you will also note that this weekend is Easter. So the first day of Passover is Friday night through Saturday night, and then Sunday becomes Easter. And so my guest and I want to talk about the intersection of Passover and Easter and its impact on relations between Christians and Jews throughout the uh, millennium. Um, Easter is always the first Sunday after the first full moon of spring. At the time of um, the historical crucifixion of Jesus, most people had a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. The Jewish calendar is also a lunar calendar, and is Passover is always on the 15th day of the Jewish month of Nisan, which is also a full moon in the spring. Therefore, the two holidays often overlap. But sometimes Easter falls much earlier than Passover, and while pa- Easter is fixed to the full moon, spring and Sunday, the Jewish calendar is fixed to the holiday of Passover. The entire Jewish calendar is meant to keep Passover in the springtime. And the Torah tells us that Passover happens in Aviv, spring in Hebrew, and therefore we make sure that Passover is in the spring to keep track of all the festivals. Lunar months are shorter than those calculated by the sun. The Jewish calendar adds an extra month shortly before Passover, seven times in a 19-year cycle. This Jewish calendar is in the first leap year in the new cycle. And so we are this year. We are in a leap year. And an extra month called Adar 1 has been added to the calendar which brings us to Easter and Passover being almost simultaneous. But in addition, we also know that some scholars think that the Last Supper, which was consumed by Jesus and his disciples, was to many scholars a Passover meal. And therefore, Passover and the story of Easter Um, have a uh, significance to each other theologically. Both festivals, as many of you know, are significant holidays. Easter is a celebration from the slavery of selfishness and sinfulness, as noted in the fulfillment of the crucifixion. And one can say that the crucifixion frees us from sin by virtue of the sacrifice, 
Passover also celebrates liberation, but serves a different purpose. It celebrates the end to years of hardship and slavery for Jews in ancient Egypt and their journey across the Red Sea and through the Sinai Desert into Israel. Passover celebrates the eternal covenant between God and the Jewish people. I could go on uh, talking about many of the other similarities and interesting uh, coincidences about these two holidays, but I want to introduce my guest who has spoken on our show on numerous occasions and is truly one of the great scholars in the rabbinic world about Jewish-Christian relations. My guest this morning is Rabbi Norman M. Cohn, the founding rabbi and now Rabbi Emeritus of Beth Shalom Congregation in Minnesota. During his tenure as senior rabbi, the congregation grew from 35 charter families in 1981 and grew to over 800 families. He has served as a wonderful congregational rabbi, not only in Minneapolis or in a suburb, but also at Rockdale Temple in Cincinnati, Ohio, the oldest Jewish congregation west of the Alleghenies. He has taught in many uh, colleges, the College of St. Catherine, Maclaster College, the United Theological Seminary, and St. Olaf College in Northfield. He is the annual fall semester rabbi-in-residence at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and he has been rabbinic scholar each year for over two decades at Mother Mar- Mary Mother of the Church in Burnsville. I could go on and on to share with you his uh, resume and his wonderful erudition. It's a pleasure to welcome my friend and colleague, Rabbi Norman Cohn, to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you very much, Steve. It's a pleasure to be back on your wonderful program, which continues to increase its uh, listening audience and win all kinds of nice awards. You're, you're doing a great job, and uh, those of us who knew you in rabbinical school are not surprised at all. Well, thank you for those kind words. I guess we have a mutual admiration society. Um, As you heard in my introduction, this weekend is one of the few times when Passover and Easter actually fall on the same weekend, Um, and one of the few times it should be noted parenthetically that Easter, Passover, and Ramadan occur uh, simultaneously. But we're not going to speak about the three Abrahamic uh, traditions this morning. We're only going to chat about Um, Passover and Easter. And I thought we should begin by you sharing with with our listeners um, some of your thoughts about um, the intersection of these two significant holidays for the people of um, uh, the two monotheistic traditions, the earliest two monotheistic traditions. Thank you, Rabbi. Um, I was listening to your introduction, very well researched. I love how you introduced the calendar and the confluence of the dating. And um, I think that's a good place to start because, you know, originally um, in the early years of the first centuries, um, Easter always fell on Passover. They, they did it at the same time uh, because of the historical coincidence. Yeah. You know, whether the Seder was, a, whether the Last Supper was a Seder or not, that's open to all kinds of controversy. 
Um, even the gospel writers don't agree on that. John places uh, the Seder, the, I'm sorry, uh, the, the Last Supper, a different day, the day before the Synoptic Gospels uh, place it uh, for all kinds of uh, theological reasons. Um, but originally, just to clarify, uh, yes. Rabbi, the Synoptic Gospels are the first three books of the Gospels, um, which um, describe the same events using somewhat different language and um, somewhat similar dating. But John, being the fourth Gospel, has a very different take on all these events. And so while included usually in the canon, or almost always in the canon, it's um, not included in what we call the Synoptic Gospels. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. The Synoptic Gospels are really about Jesus' life, and uh, John is actually, while it contains stories about his life, it's the meaning of his death that becomes the main Most, part of, of that's John's That's right. Gospel. Thank you. Yes, but they have different purposes, so they have, um, they have different uh, dates of the, of the Last Supper. Anyhow, originally, the, the reason I bring this up is originally, they did have uh, Easter Sunday uh, following the Passover uh, holiday right at the same time. And the early church, the church fathers, made a conscientious decision to separate it. Um, not just, this, not just uh, Easter, but to make a separation between early Christianity and their Jewish sibling. And uh, many things they did to move it away. And Easter, which is really the only holiday on the Christian calendar that's calculated uh, with a lunar factor, um, becomes a holiday that doesn't always coincide with Passover now. And uh, the thing is, I like the fact that there is much greater interest today in the Christian world about Jewish holidays, because it indicates to me that we reached a different point in our interfaith relations. The early church years were days of tremendous acrimony in both directions, from uh, Jewish authorities to Christians and back and forth. And we've seen a radical change in our own day. Uh, the fact that you have this radio show is one of the manifestations of it, that there are so many people who are not Jewish who want to learn about, uh, about Judaism. And the fact that I had these opportunities to teach, we're living in a new age. Um, and that's a good thing. So uh, what changed? I think the most important event was uh, Pope John XXIII and Vatican II, which radically changed the atmosphere uh, between Christians and Jews, um, I think, hope forever, because uh, Pope John XXIII uh, really opened the door to uh, interfaith dialogue, and so many have happened since then. Uh, in the early years, it was all about, okay, what do we have in common? And that was a really nice, make nice period, but it often led to syncretism. Every people saying, oh, these religions are all the same. And what we discovered is it's also valuable to talk about the differences. And, um, and that's where we, we grow. And we can talk about the differences without proselytizing or trying to convince the other that they're wrong and we're right. Because we live in an age of understanding that there are many ways to connect with God. Our holiday of Passover, as you so nicely described, does connect, to, connect us to our covenant because it's the story of really the beginning of the Jewish people uh, coming out of slavery, being free, being redeemed, uh, having a kind of a salvation from this uh, slavery. And yes, Christianity has, uh, in Easter, a very important, in, in many ways, and most Christian scholars would agree, much more important than Christmas, um, this very serious idea about salvation from sin and the death of Jesus bringing salvation for original sin, which is, of course, a, 
a Christian idea, not something that, that we Jews um, have as a part of our faith. But they both have parallels. And I enjoy the fact that so many churches want to know about Judaism. And that led to um, a common practice of wanting to join Jews at Jewish seders and learning about the seder. Not just because some Christians think it's the Last Supper. I think um, most scholars today would say it probably wasn't the Last Supper. But it, and, um, and certainly in the yeah. first century of the Common Era, when history tells us um, the historical Jesus would have been crucified, what a Seder looked like in 33 would have been very, very different than what will be observed um, in two evenings throughout the Jewish world. Um, we certainly, the emphasis then would have been on the Paschal sacrifice. Exactly. There was no Seder at the time Jesus died. There was not a Seder at all. Jesus would have, of course, observed Passover like the other Jews of his time by partaking of the meat from the sacrifice at the temple, the remainder. But there right. was no- and, he would have, and he would have followed uh, the story in Exodus which says the first commandment uh, of Passover is to eat the Paschal offering with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Exactly. And that would have been, I think it's fair to say, the primary uh, observance of Passover in the first century. Right. I mean, the, the Seder is developed much later. It comes in the Talmud. And, um, and, and the Seder we do today has really no resemblance to what went on in the ancient temple. In fact, during the Seder, when we point out the the, bo- the, uh, the shank bone, which is supposed to remind us of the sacrifices that we haven't done for 2,000 years, uh, we're, we're supposed to be clear that we don't even hold it up because we don't want anyone to think that we're offering sacrifices. We're, we're, Judaism is in a whole different mode and dimension because, frankly, in that first century, modern Judaism and Christianity both began as responses to the events of that first century. For Christians, it was the event of the life of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus. That was the event of the first century that really began Christianity. And for Jews, we our response is to the destruction of the temple in the year 70. And what we have today is rabbinic Judaism, which was um, which grew out of that time because we no longer had a temple. We were no longer sacrificing. We no longer had a priesthood. We had this group of leaders called rabbis, of which you and I are privileged to serve, but we didn't become rabbis because we were born into it because our fathers were rabbis. Like priesthood. Like priests are, and my name Cohen means I'm also a priest in Judaism, but I prefer my role as a rabbi than I would as of a priest because I'm not interested in sacrificing animals. Since the first century, the rabbi said, we don't sacrifice anymore. Instead, we pray. We study, and we do good deeds to make the world a better place. So that's the so, so both of these holidays are seminal events for the religious traditions that observe them. Right. But throughout history, these seminal events have created a tension between the uh, two monotheistic traditions. And I think it's fair to say that most uh, scholars would agree that Christianity emerges as an offshoot of Judaism, whatever metaphor one wants to use about trunk of the tree and the um, or the roots of the tree, but one emerges from the other. 
And while they agreed in the importance of these holidays, throughout history, there were some liturgical issues that emphasized the differences. And in some ways, those differences became quite uh, challenging to any kind of relationship. Um, and so I just wanted to mention one, of course, that um, throughout um, a great part of the Middle Ages, there were mythological um, stories that suggested that Jews made matzah from Christian blood. Um, usually the stories indicated that it was the blood of Christian children. And in Eastern Europe, um, these led to uh, pogroms, the slaughtering of Jewish communities. In some cases, the pogrom was large and extensive, and some was more localized. But um, the notion of blood and matzah, the blood, of course, which is significant part of the Eucharist, um, and um, one could spend an entire show talking about the meaning of blood in Judaism, but there was a tension, and that's the reason I wanted to introduce that old um, story, which of course had no truth to it. Um, and you wanted to kind of spend a moment in the time that's available to us talking about some of the tensions that emerged, even though we came from the same uh, tree. Well, I like that you use a tree metaphor because um, I, I like to use it, but in a different way. I don't think that there's one tree growing from those roots. I think I see three trees growing from that roots, those roots. The roots to me are the history up until the first century, and that is the roots of what Christians call the Old Testament. We call our Tanakh. And from those roots, you have the, the tree of Judaism. You have the tree of Christianity, you have the tree of Islam. They all grow to those common roots, but to see it as one tree basically is to define the Old Testament or the Jews as never seeing the light of day and having that tree trunk replace Judaism and say the purpose of Judaism was to provide sustenance to its successor or its supersessor, Christianity. So I like the idea of three trees. It's a, a very useful metaphor because these are three living trees growing from these roots that nourish all of us. And that's what we share and we need to do that. But you're right about the tension. I want to address it because it manifests itself in many ways. This blood libel you talked about was a horrible thing. But most scholars believe that it originally began as an anti-Christian polemic by the pagans who would walk by the churches and they would walk by and hear the priest celebrating mass. And when the priest celebrates mass, as you know, and your listeners know, when the priest holds up the Eucharist, the wafer, he says, this is the body of, of Jesus. And he holds up the chalice of wine and says, and this is his blood. We drink it and we partake in um, transubstantiation. The, these items become Jesus' so blood and, and body. And so early pagans accused the early Christian church of cannibalism. And it's ironic that this is later used against the Jews for whom our eating habits don't allow us to have even one drop of blood in our meat. In fact, my grandmother used to kosher the meat and add so much salt to it. And I think everybody in our family has high blood pressure today because of this. But she she took used the salt method to take the blood out of the meat. So it's, it's a, a strange irony. That's only one thing. The, the other things I want to mention are something that one of my Christian colleagues, 
Um, I'm in, I'm lucky to be in a dialogue of retired um, ministers and lay leaders, and we share all kinds of ideas. And this one person who um, dialogues with tells about how disturbed she is around this time because some of the scripture readings in the churches, because in the scripture readings in churches now, of course, they read at this time the passion narrative, the story of the crucifixion and the death and resurrection of Jesus. In that passion narrative, because of when it was written at a time when the church and, and Judaism had separated, at a time when the church was proselytizing Romans to become Christians, they couldn't in any way blame the Romans who were truly responsible for the death of Jesus because they're okay. trying to get them interested in Christianity. The passion narrative you're referring to is found in the Gospels itself, primarily the Gospel of John. Well, no, actually, right? it's in all of them. And John reiterates it, yes, in a different way. And John uses this term, eudaia, which is the Greek word for Jews. But it's also the Greek word, a geographic word for the people who lived in Judea. And so some of his references aren't to blaming the Jews, even though they've been used that way. And also, by that time, when he says eudaio, he sometimes is referring to just a few of the leaders of the Jewish community who collaborated with the Romans, who were the only ones who had the power of capital punishment. So she's disturbed by these, and she's working hard um, to have the proper context. Taught. I mean, text is one thing. Context is valuable. And I think I've shared with you, I have a, another friend who in 1981, he was one of my colleagues in Cincinnati, and he was in charge of the um, Archdiocese Office of Interfaith and Ecumenical Relations. He created this great pamphlet and sent a letter to every priest in the archdiocese on preaching the passion without prejudice. And he talks about how, how easy it is to add a few words of introduction to these texts so that the listener in the pew can be aware of when it was written and who was writing it and how much different today the relationship that we desire between Christians and Jews should be. And, so let's go back yeah. to these texts. And when yes. we're speaking about liturgical texts, we're primarily speaking about the Roman Catholic Church. It's also that, in Protestant churches, too. And some Protestant churches, uh, more traditional Protestant churches, which follow a more fixed uh, liturgy. Um, and some of these um, um, liturgical readings both that describe the Passion episode and other uh, theological um, expressions of um, the um, blame that's appropriated to the Jews. Why don't you share with some of our listeners who um, may not be aware of them exactly what your colleague was referring to? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll read a, a little paragraph from what she wrote. She says, um, um, Okay, where it is. Just be okay. At a volatile time, with the growth of anti Jewish websites like Jew Watch and issues concerning Israel and Palestine, it seems critical to address the anti Judaism possible to associate with the Lenten and Holy Week text. I'm reminded of a pre Easter editorial written several years ago by the Reverend John Buchanan, editor of the Christian Century magazine, the head minister of Fourth. Presbyterian Church in Chicago, who observed, I am probably not the only preacher who cringes every Good Friday as I read John's passion narrative with its relentless negative reference to the Jews. And she says, I resonated with the sentiment then and do with renewed fervor now and thus urge that special attention be paid 
that the anti-Judaism that can be periodically interpreted from various Christian texts, but most especially those in the Easter season. And uh, she says, the good news for Christians must in no way perpetuate bad news for Jews. I find these efforts tremendously helpful and important for us to examine how we think about the other. And we Jews need to do that with how we think about non-Jewish relationships with God, too. It's interesting. Uh, my memory is that um, the Vatican, uh, subsequent to John, Pope John XXIII's Vatican Council, gave churches greater flexibility about what text to use um, during the uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday uh, uh, masses. But later on, um, some of the more conservative popes yes. um, asked that those verses be replaced within the mass itself. Um, I don't want to suggest that they were anti-Semites, but rather a reflection of a more conservative approach to liturgy and a return to traditionalism. Uh, the ramifications of the replacing of those texts within the Mass may have, in fact, um, increased some anti-Jewish feeling. But I don't want to be understood to suggest that the popes were, saw that as their primary purpose. No, no, would I. I think that I think within, within, within every religious tradition, there's always struggles back and forth about more conservative, more liberal approaches. And it goes with uh, time. I think that the culture influences religious leaders and vice versa. Um, we have right now a pope who's very liberal and approaches things in a way of trying to open things. One of his best friends when he was uh, an archbishop was uh, the rabbi. And, uh, and he and that rabbi still have a great relationship and connection. I think this is a good thing to hold up um, to the world. But I, there are other things, too, that are involved at this time of the year. Um, you talked about all the things that went on in the Middle Ages. Well, there's sculptures. And you know this uh, as well as I do. There are many sculptures around churches. When I traveled through Europe, I saw them everywhere. There's a church. Uh, there's a sculpture with Jesus on the cross. And next to Jesus on one side is a woman. Um, and on the other side is a woman. And they are called um, Ecclesiasta, the, the church, and the synagogue, the the synagogue, and very often the church is depicted as this beautiful woman holding a chalice, catching the blood of Jesus coming out of his side. But on the other side, the the uh, the synagogue of the woman, she is holding a, a sort of a scythe, a, a sort of a, a weapon, and her eyes are blindfolded. And these are the kinds of images that used to exist. Um, I'm happy to say that in more recent years, we see sculptures much more enlightened trying to Take the role, uh, take this image of Jew and Christian together. The one I think of is in Philadelphia, and it's an image of a woman holding a Torah scroll, looking over at her friend, another woman representing the church, holding a holy book. And they're sharing each other's traditions in a very healthy way. And I find this is the mood and the, the, the mood we need to strive for today and take our cue, not just from Pope John the 23rd, but the many people involved in interfaith dialogues. And when it comes to my sermons... Guest this yeah. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Norman Cohn of uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, who's helped us to uh, historically and liturgically and emotionally understand the intersection between Passover and Easter. It's a conversation that could continue for hours. I want to thank him for his erudition and for his unpacking some of these challenging 
intersections. Um, For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a repeat of our show on chri.ca, the website of the station that hosts our conversation, or as a podcast on iTunes. For those who observe Easter, I wish you a happy Easter. For those who observe Passover, Hag Sameach, Shalom, and have a good day.